Hello, everyone. Justin here. Ricky will not be joining us on this episode. He had some technical difficulties. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that, but that's okay. He'll be back on the next one. Tonight's guest was, uh, in my opinion, a big fish. Like We wanted this guy on. Ever since last turkey season, when I noticed that he harvested a turkey the very first morning on open public land in South Florida, I'll leave the name unsaid we can all pretty much assume where it's at it's the worst place on earth to hunt turkeys and this guy nailed one opening morning and i'm pretty sure he tagged out shortly thereafter i knew number one he was a woodsman and on top of that he's a gladesman he hunts by himself for the most part he's very intelligent very thought out very articulate so it was it was honestly a pleasure doing this podcast with him and I do believe, again, I've made another friend in this world, in this state. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Richard Martinez. I'm Justin Bullard. And I'm Ricky Bullard. And we are definitely from the woods. Mr. Richard Martinez, first of all, thank you very much, sir, for giving us the time of day. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. How are you today? All right. How are you doing? Good. Let's get an introduction. Who you are, where you live, where you're from, what you do. Well, I'm Richard Martinez. I live in Jupiter, Florida. I uh, professionally, I install and pack fine art. Uh, and in my spare time, weekend time, I spend my days in the woods running around the swamps of South Florida. All right, I got to know. That's a un very unique job. I've never known anyone that does that. Would you do it for public things or private museums or what uh, both? Yeah, mostly private collections is most of the clients we work for, but also do work for museums uh, and some public work, uh, like public sculpture, things like that. So that yeah. is freaking awesome, man. <laughs> Looking at your Instagram, I wouldn't think you did anything except kill stuff and step yeah, time well, in the I, woods. Yeah, I keep my professional world and my private world separate. So I try to leave that, leave that stuff in the office when I leave. That's very, very smart. Probably a safe thing <laughs> to do. Would you consider yourself a gladesman? I would. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say as a hunter, I spend pretty much all of my time in wetlands uh and just by that uh, i think i would cl claim myself a gladesman you, you probably got webbed feet man I, i've been <laughs> down there a few times and uh and i've been down there in the dry season and from what i understand from uh, what eddie told us that it's the wet season right now oh yeah yeah it's the wet season we get we get about uh two-thirds of the rain that we get throughout the year we get it during this period of, of the year which uh, pretty much runs about May, June, depending on when the rains start, uh, till about October, November, and the peak of it is is September. So archery season, pretty much for us, is the is the peak of the wet season. Now, what is the fluctuation? Because obviously, I'm a North Florida flatlander, but I've been down there in turkey season twice. And what is the fluctuation from turkey season to, to like say right now? Uh, well, it, it can vary uh, depending on the timing of the rain and, and also depending on rain events. So like, for instance, if we have a tropical storm or a hurricane, uh, that could extend the wet season all the way into turkey season. It, it really depends on, you know, when those rains start, when those rains end. 
we're we're kind of having a dry year uh this year uh so you know barring any kind of big tropical event uh knock on wood um we'll probably have a, a pretty dry dry turkey season but we'll see it all kind of depends <laughs> us north florida guys are very appreciative of that i'm sure it has <laughs> some detrimental effects on the wildlife down there but goodness you know i absolutely appreciate uh the wetter it can be the the better for me i mean i i feel like uh the deeper the water uh the easier it is to lose the crowd oh uh, that's a very good point from you tough dudes down there you, you uh, guys that are lot, born and bred folks, down there yeah a lot of folks won't wade through uh you know knee deep water or, or waist deep water uh in the night coming through with a headlamp uh so i uh yeah i kind of i kind of secretly pray for a very wet season it, it lets me get away from people well, I tell you what, we call y'all uh, South Florida crazies for a reason, and that's just another thing. <laughs> that Because I'll tell you what, though, going down two years and trying it on public down there, the third year I'd probably swim swim the ocean to try to get to a bird. Yeah, well, you know, people are very adaptable, and, you know, this is home, so you, you adapt, right? Because the alternative is – and I've got a lot of friends who do live down here, and they don't hunt down here. They all go to Georgia. They have leases or – you know, they go to other parts of the country and that's where they do their hunting. But um, if you, you know, if you really, really enjoy hunting and you want to be out in the woods year round, um, you're just going to, you know, kind of have to adapt and, and just, you know, embrace it really. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I'm an official measure. And when I went to Montana, I spent a week out there getting certified for Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young. And I met the director of Boone and Crockett. We hit it off right, right off the rip, you know, so had dinner with my wife at his house and everything him and his wife we become really good friends now and we went on a moose hunt in maine shot a big moose and it's on my wall now over my fireplace when i built my new house i built the fireplace like uh reinforced so i could put a big animal up there and i finally <laughs> did however i'm trying to get him to come to florida and he's like man i just don't think i can do it because i have a big uh party every year for the fourth of july it's like my favorite mm -hmm. holiday and he just, he said, dude, I can't come to Florida in July. I, I just, he said, I'll die. He said, I want to be able to go outside. Yeah. I would say like, I don't know how folks, some folks in like the Midwest hunt deer when they, when they do hunt deer. I, I don't think I could do that either. I just, you know, it's just not what I'm built for and, and just not what I'm used to. And, and I just don't think I can uh, sit in the cold that long uh, up in a tree. Well, we hunt in Illinois. We got a farm there that we hunt for free, just some friends of ours. And I tell you, once your feet go numb, they don't hurt anymore. So, <laughs> but uh, I always made fun of people that wore Sitka. But I'm telling you right now, if you're today, if you sit in a tree in the Midwest, Sitka is your friend. And I made fun of it for years. And guess what? I own a full set now because there's just no comparison. You can yeah. layer up all you want with other stuff. You put on Sitka, one layer, you're done. Yeah. It is well worth the money. And the good thing is it costs so much money. I'm going to hand it down to my son one day. It'll last, you know, three uh -huh. lifetimes. It's very well-made stuff. Yeah, you get what you pay for. All right. Well, I got a list of things I want to get into with you. Um, first of all, folks, this guy is a turkey assassin on public land <laughs> in South Florida. And the thing I remember most, I don't remember if it was this year. I think it was this year. You were like the first person I saw on Facebook that or on Instagram that had harvested a turkey on open public land. I said, you know what? That dude is a badass. I've got to get him on eventually. 
because I've had this idea of a podcast for a while and I'm like been banking all these names. I've met so many wonderful people across the country. You know, I've been blessed enough to go do some TV stuff and met some people out West and stuff like that. And I've been banking all these names and I wrote yours down the second I saw you kill a turkey up in the morning. It, it's bittersweet because, you know, you want, you want success to happen, but you know, once it's over, then you're like, darn, what am I going to, you know, I have to wait. <laughs> how many weeks till georgia opens up so bittersweet <laughs> well how about this year i want some bittersweet because i know i'm gonna be down there suffering again <laughs> i try to tell people uh hunting south florida is like a perpetual state of wet and it's yeah. like it just you i bring three pairs of boots uh you know i got my hiking boots that i wear in idaho and i'm not gonna wear water boots in the south florida it's just it's worthless to mm-hmm. me so I just have always a pair that is in the process of mostly dry by the next morning I'm hunting. I just keep on rotation, put them in the sun, you know? Yeah. But just got yeah, used to being wet. That's really, you know, the most unique part about South Florida. I mean, folks talk about, talk about how, how different it is and it, it, it is wetlands all the time. You know, there, it, there are areas, you know, it dries out at, at periods, but you're basically hunting wetlands year round, whether, you know, you're hunting during deer season or small game or, uh, or even during Turkey, like I said, some years when, when that, when that wet season extends, uh, past where it normally would be, you know, we could have a wet year and it it looks just as wet as, as it would in, in during deer season. Well, I mean, I've, I would say, the first year I went was drier, which was two years ago, drier than this year, just by a little bit. But I'm just curious if like, cause I'm going to, I'm going to deer hunt down there eventually, but I'm curious is the places that were knee deep during Turkey season, are they going to be waist deep during deer season? Is that a, you know, a rule of a, a loose rule of thumb? It's, it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. It's definitely possible, especially like those Cypress domes, the Cypress strands. Uh, you know, those, those birds will kind of hug the edges of, of where water is. So that changes, right? So that Cypress Dome that maybe the center of it is underwater uh, when you were there during turkey season, that, that whole Cypress Dome is underwater right now up through the prairie. So oh, wow. uh, that the center of it that maybe you crossed in that was knee deep, that, you know, that, that could be waist deep right now. <laughs> I actually found some pretty good Pine Islands when I was down there the first year. Um, I was impressed, but I mean, you mm. could even set a tent up on them, some of them, but I was also, <laughs> I was oh, still, yeah. I was still starstruck by being out there in the ocean of, of grass. So I see <laughs> that you're a part of Florida backcountry hunters and anglers. You want to explain that to folks that may not know? That's right. Uh, I serve on the board of the Florida chapter backcountry hunters and anglers, and I serve as the chair for the chapter. Um, and you know, we're basically primarily right now focused on R3. Uh, we're doing a lot of events, uh, just trying to bring people out to the woods, kind of, you know, get people engaged with hunting. Um, but we've also tackled a few local issues, things like the bear hunt, things like, uh, you know, access opportunities and some of the refuges that have come up in the last few years. And, uh, and yeah, we're basically, you know, just just want to get people who, you know, might uh, not know how to cross that barrier over from curiosity to actual hunting. Um, just try and get their, you know, especially in South Florida, just try and get their feet wet, you know, just try and get them out in the woods. So we'll do things like small game hunts, uh, you know, it's just kind of like open invite, come on out, 
Um, you know, we'll do a group hunt. We'll kind of break off into, you know, different groups. If, if you've never hunted before or never been in the area, we'll, you know, we we'll just try and partner you up with someone who's familiar with the area and knows what they're doing and just kind of, you know, show you the ropes and just, just get folks out there. Well, that's, that's a very altruistic thing, man. Good for you. We're just, just trying to give back to the community. So especially in South Florida where, you know, things are changing, right? Um, you know, we've got a lot of people coming in from a lot of different places coming in, kind of changing uh, some of the sentiment around hunting. So, you know, it's, it's super important, especially now it's critical, um, you know, that we, we, you know, we keep a strong presence, not only, you know, as recreational users, but also as stakeholders that we, you know, engage folks with FWC, um, you know, we, we, we teach people about uh, the rulemaking process and, you know, how collaborative it truly is and, and how, you know, ultimately if, if you don't like something, you know, you, you've got a voice in this and, you know, you can go to an FWC meeting and, and tell them exactly what you think. And, you know, you'll get two minutes where the commission will listen to you. So. Well, that's cool. Uh, I think a lot of people, including myself, you know, have, false ideas about how it works because this things we hear from our fishing buddies and our hunting buddies and then later in a podcast earlier i said some things about biologists but i mean <laughs> it's all about learning at this point it's, i'm not always right no it, it's a tricky process you know and a lot of people you know they there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of smoke that gets blown on social media and you know there's a lot of things that come up on facebook and you know people have very strong opinions but you know, ultimately, you know, the FWC, the biologists, those folks that, that are part of the rulemaking process, they're, you know, they're, they're not monitoring Facebook for, for what folks think on there. Like that, that's not really the venue, um, you know, to kind of express like, you know, what you think is right or don't think is right. I mean, it, those commission meetings are, are a real great opportunity to, you know, to actually have a voice, like I said, you know, it, it you go, uh, you sign up for public comment. If there's something you really feel passionate about, you stand up in front of the room. And, and like I said, you tell the commission themselves, um, you know, what you feel, why you feel it, you know, and, and we've had some successes and we've also had some failures during that process. You know, one example of a failure w would be the bear hunt, right? Um, oh gosh. Now that's, you know, ultimately, the, the commission's like a weird thing, right? Because it it takes both public sentiment um, and then it takes, you know, staff, which are ultimately scientists, biologists, um, and it takes those two things and it kind of weighs them and it kind of makes decisions based off that. So when, you know, you have a community that feels very strongly against hunt hunting uh, for various reasons, and especially against animals like, like bear, um, they show up, right? And in the instance of the bear hunt, they showed up more than we showed up. So, you know, we can, we can complain and, you know, we can go up, like I said, on Facebook and, and you know, scream at the sky and, and say, you know, why they do that to us. But at the end of the day, they showed up and we didn't. So that's where we're at. That's a very good point, man. Uh, Steve Ranella says, what do people, what is people's deal with bears? Like everybody wants to protect a bear, but you know, <laughs> they care less about deer and, you know, squirrels and everything else. 
Well, it's, it's easy to personify them, right? We've, we have like a, a legacy of, of media that's taught us from a from from children that that bears have these you know personalities and you know we can relate to them and you know their characters and our stories and so you know they're lovable so you know it's hard to it's hard to imagine uh you know the, the you know think about bambi the the big bad hunter coming in waging war on on you know the woods essentially it's it's almost like a, a story of like innocence you know uh versus you know man it's 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 easy to emotionally pull people in that direction without really kind of like seeing you know what 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 really the landscape uh has and it, it what what's really involved that's it's a very good point man you're a very thought out person thank you um you you mentioned earlier small game i'm trying to build up to the bigger things but right now we're talking about small game I saw one of your posts on uh, on Instagram of uh, Snipe. Yes, yes, sir. Yeah, you know i I love to deer hunt, but quite honestly, if I've shot two deer, I'm done. Like I, the freezer's full. We're gonna, you know, we're probably gonna eat venison throughout the year. We're gonna stretch it out. You know, we'll have our venison night once a week. Like I'm good, um, but you know, once I, unless I've got a, another quota that I've drawn that I'm excited to hunt, um, you know, if I've shot two deer, you know, I, I can't wait to get into small game. I can't wait to get into squirrels to snipe. Um, I really feel like, you know, that that's when the rubber hits the road for me. Uh, you know, that there, there's a lot of at stake when I'm deer hunting. It's, it's, it's almost like, you know, I've got to fill this freezer because for me and my family, like I, I want us to be eating wild game and that's very important to me. But by the time that's over and that monkey's off my back, like I feel like at that point I can, I can have fun and, and just enjoy my time in the woods. Just, you know, if I get some, I, I get, I do, if I don't, it's okay. I just went for a walk or, you know, it's just exercise at that point, you know, it's both mentally and physically. So at that point, it's just, you know, it's really just a matter of getting out in the woods and, and, you know, experiencing that. Yeah, I was going to tell you, uh, we do a lot of lease hunting up here in North Florida, you know, hunting clubs and stuff like that. But I've truly found that going out and scouting public land, I've done it pretty heavy the past two weeks. Last year is when I got into it for the first time. I shot a six point on public. But I've went out three times in the past two weeks just got out of my truck and just like, you know what, I'm going to walk this strand or I'm going to walk this creek bottom or whatever. And I thoroughly enjoy it. And also it is like, I'm telling you this morning, I did 4.2 miles. It doesn't mm -hmm. sound like a lot, but when <laughs> I'm walking in swamp and yeah. stepping over logs and walking through palmetto patches and just fighting vines, it mm -hmm. it's like running a marathon. I go back to my truck yeah. and I love it. It's, it's a workout that doesn't feel like a workout. No, totally. I mean, I love, I love, I probably love scouting for deer just as much as, as hunting for deer, you know, and like I said, you know, just, just being able to just wander, just to roam, you know, that's, that's just fun for me. I mean, that, that's why I'm in it. I mean, I, I do it year round, whether it's scouting during the summer or, or like, you know, small game during the winter or, and then ultimately, you know, turkey and, and a lot of small game hunting for me is, is also turkey scouting because as I get closer and closer to turkey, I'm I'm kind of gravitating towards it, uh, you know things like you know 
habitat that would be more favorable for like squirrels per se. So it allows me to, you know, just kind of like get out super early, listen for gobbles and then spend the rest of my time, you know, squirrel hunting. There's no doubt that small game hunting makes you a better woodsman all the way around. You look at different oh, yeah. things. You look at things differently than a one dimensional deer hunter. Mm -hmm. Totally. Do the snipe taste like dove or what do they taste like? Yeah. Yeah. Very much like dove. I like them a little better than dove. They're a little less uh, livery, but very, very similar. Uh, you know, you can take any dove recipe and convert it to a snipe recipe. It's, it's really kind of like the same uh, in, in just in volume and in taste. Huh. I've never, I've never actually known someone to eat snipe. I, that's interesting. I'm going to have to uh, look into that a little more. And they're, you know, just really fun wing shooting, just super fun. And, and you know, the way we hunt them, uh, you know, we just walk. We just walk. We just find prairies that have the, the right water level because they don't like super flooded and they don't like dry. So um i i tell my friends we got to find the squishy stuff you know just where you're just your your the tip of your boot might be underwater and that's it um and we just walk through that slow and kick them up um and they're you know they're they're great wing shooting they're hard to hit and uh you know i, I just have a blast doing it so they bust like quail kind of yeah yeah they explode when they pop up they explode and and one of the things you have to kind of like pause and, and just give it a sec, because when they when they pop up, they'll kind of zigzag and explode. And then once they kind of like get up into the air, they'll kind of coast off. So your reaction, you kind of like, you know, react to the explosion and and you want to shoot it right away. But at that moment, it's either really hard to hit or if, if you do hit them, um, you're going to you might make a mess of the meat because they might be too close. So you kind of let them explode and then kind of sail off. And then as they're coasting away, that's when you want to take your shots. <laughs> that, that's actually the first time I've ever heard of, uh, you know, how, how, how you hunt snipe. I've never heard it described before. That sounds yeah. like a lot of fun. And what time of year that's early, like February or. Uh, that de it depends on the water levels. They are migratory and uh, the, those water levels and the weather kind of impacts them. Um, but it can kind of, we could, we could kind of start seeing them during deer. I mean, even you'll bust them up, uh, you know, uh, during archery season, but, but they won't be in like big numbers. So they'll come in like probably like December, January, February. That's kind of when they're, when they're really here. <laughs> I, I busted a covey of wild quail in central Georgia two years ago, walking to my stand before daylight. And I, I don't like going in with a light because I pretty much know where I'm going. Mm-hmm. And that covey of quail stole my soul. I thought the devil done got me. I thought Sasquatch got me. I was swinging my rifle, man. Yeah. <laughs> and they waited till I was, I mean, stepping on them before they blew out. Oh, God. Yeah, the snipe will do the exact God. same thing, especially at night. They'll, they'll really wait till you're right on top of them and, and they'll, you know, your heart will skip a beat, uh, you know, coming in at night when they explode. You know, what's funny is I heard uh, Dave Owens one time describing turkey hunting South Florida. And I really respect him just for his abilities. But he's talking about, man, the first time I went to South Florida, he's like, the sun comes up and you start hearing crazy amounts of different birds. And oh, yeah. I guess I never really realized living in Florida how many birds we have. I was in oh, Montana yeah. on a turkey hunt last year at my mm -hmm. buddy's place. And they, they ran to, we we're at midday just chilling, ran to the window, got the binoculars and they're looking out. They're like, oh, it's a... Uh, purple hearted spritzer finch i'm like or whatever you know i'm like 
man, that's Tweety Bird. And they're like, no, they're rare. I was like, we have millions of the like we have all different colors back home, and I didn't realize there's there's basically ravens and woodpeckers out there. That's all there is. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, he described like, sitting there, you know, listening for a gobble and hearing hundreds of different bird sounds. Yeah, the the Everglades. It's it's a place. It's it's not like the Grand Canyon. It's not the scale is not huge, right? The scale is is micro. It's it's like it's a completely different place, and and that doesn't mean that it. It's not, you know, as grand as, as places out west. It's it's just grand in a completely different way, you know, where, whether it be just the the amount of just just dense life that it that it holds. You know, everything, you know, from the ground up is just is just full of life. Even even in the water, when you're walking through the swamp and you're, you know, trudging through the just the, in the water itself, the the peri fighting that all the you know little uh, the little minnow fish eat and all the birds that eat those. And, you know, it, it supports so much wildlife and, and, uh, yeah, once you start seeing that, it just kind of, you, you, you just go down a rabbit hole and, and, and just how you can appreciate, uh, South Florida. It, <laughs> the wildest thing to me down there is hunting public land and you'll be eight miles in thinking you're the only thing around for miles. And all of a sudden you walk up on and, an old deer stand or a, con- or a ladder stand or something like who carried this son of a gun back here uh-huh. holy cow like that is dedicated i'd rather just hunt off the ground before i did that oh yeah yeah like i said you know if people are people are adaptable so you know if this is home if, if this is where these if these are your stomping grounds you know you're going to do whatever you need to do to to you know uh, accomplish your goals whether you know whether it be you know deer hunting or turkey hunting you're gonna you know go as far as you need to go or you know as deep in the water as you need to get or you know cross whatever thick nasty swamp you need to get onto the other side of um you know because if truly you know if, if you if you want to harvest game here and you want to be successful on you know any sort of consistent level um you know you just got to embrace it y'all have yellow flies uh we have deer flies okay these are we call them yellow flies up here i'm not sure what they're called they if you get in a bay or in a shady area let's say middle of the day and you're in a big you know uh, oak hammock or something boy they light you up if you're out in the sunlight it ain't so bad but my goodness i don't know what a deer fly maybe the same thing yeah it may be it looked very similar do, do you uh do you duck hunt down there where you I do duck hunt yeah i i would say uh i'm a i'm a low-hanging fruit duck hunter so me too, me too. I, I apply for permits and when i get permits i duck hunt um uh, and beyond that i don't really make a lot of effort to i mean i might duck hunt maybe three or four hunts a year um and i like duck hunting it's fun but you know one of the things about florida as you may know i mean it it's a sportsman's paradise i mean there's something to do year round there's you know multiple seasons open up at once so it's hard for me to you know really tackle duck hunting when when you know there's things like squirrel and snipe and you know just all sorts of fun to be had i think you'll y'all have more ducks talking to eddie i think y'all have more ducks down there than we do we have wood ducks mainly in the inland areas like where I live. And then on the coast, you'll get teal. But I mean, there's a few other little ones in there, but it seems like y'all get a bunch of uh, ducks down there. But 
I guess with it being harder to duck hunt here, more people are crazy about it. It's like the thing you want, but you can't get. I have buddies that once, I mean, they'll deer hunt up until duck season opens in mm-hmm. November and then they're done. They duck hunt every day. And it, to me, I'll go with them and it's fun, but it's expensive. Number one, mm-hmm. I can't afford another hobby like that. And these guys yeah. go all in mud motors and not the, I mean, yeah, just I the shells that, you got to use are expensive. That's, that's one of my barriers to, I think, really losing myself with duck hunting is just the stuff and like how much stuff you need and whether it be to you know decoys or a a boat or a kayak and it's just it just feels clunky it's always felt clunky to me um and when you know when you haven't done it for a year um you know you're super pumped and you're like oh man ducks coming and, and you get super excited and you get out there and you have a few hunts and you harvest some ducks and you're like this is awesome and then by that third or four hunt, fourth hunt i'm like oh my god look at all this stuff i have to put in my truck like it, it kind of becomes you know laborsome where you, you know i i'm truly a turkey nut i mean that's really my favorite and i i just love being so mobile and running gun i mean that's kind of like where i lose where i lose my mind Oh man, I'm gonna tell you, grew up in a hunting club and all I cared about was deer. My uncle, nobody really turkey hunted. So I didn't turkey hunt. And it wasn't until I was in my early twenties that I actually started turkey hunting. And I, 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 I regret so much all those years that I was in a good hunting club that had a lot of turkeys and I didn't care about them at all. <laughs> and I regret that so much because I'm crazy about it now. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely, definitely my favorite. I always ask people when I, you know, talk to them, I'm like, Hey, if you had the choice, the best deer hunting property in the United States for the rest of your life, or the best turkey hunting property in the United States for the rest of your life, which would you choose? And 75% of them choose deer. There's no way I because w- turkey habitat to us up here is so rare to get because we're so mm-hmm. choked out with undergrowth and there's not mm-hmm. a big lot, a lot of, there's not a lot of big hardwood bottoms. And I, I just, it's it's hard to explain to non-hunters how much I love an animal that I also shoot. Yeah. <laughs> but right. I really do. I really do love Terry. We're actually, this, this podcast is going to the convention in Nashville this year. So we're really excited about that. Cool. Yeah. I mean, when you spend so much time around the animal, I mean, even scouting, I spend weeks and weeks and weeks scouting and just kind of like thinking about turkeys, you know, getting excited about listening to turkeys, getting super pumped when I see a turkey. Um, you know, into season when, you know, actually chasing turkeys. I mean, you just spend so much time thinking about turkeys. I mean, you just fall in love. I mean, it's something that, you know, only those who do it really, you know, understand that feeling. Mm -hmm. It's hard to explain to people. There are people like, oh, it's just a bird. I see them every time it's raining. I see them in fields. Well, it's different when you get out and try to kill them during the goblin season. Uh To me, we still got three weeks left before a bow season opens here. So I'm pretty excited right now about deer. But one, like mm-hmm. you said, once I kill my first deer, a lot of that'll pull off. And then, mm-hmm. but it's not like that with turkey, man. I, oh, every yeah. day of turkey season and every day with the month leading up to turkey season, I'm thinking about it all day. Yeah. Well, that that's where I've been at is, you know, I've been very fortunate, fortunate the last few years uh, to have tagged out, you know, pretty quickly. And, uh, and then I'm just waiting for the next state to open up and, and I've, you know, gotten into traveling. I've hunted, uh, turkey hunted Georgia, North Carolina, Nebraska, but, you know, I want to kind of keep expanding that and, you know, take more time off work and in April and, 
just get out to more states and and just you know extend my season. Nebraska is pretty amazing for turkey hunting, isn't it? Oh yeah, no the the first first morning I ever hunted in Nebraska, the sun came up and the birds started gobbling, and I, <laughs> I turned to my buddy and I was like, you know, you just, I mean, he didn't. But I was just like, you just ruined turkey hunting in Florida for me. Oh, and he didn't because you know that following year I was like, oh yeah, you know, this is what I love, but just listening to like, honest to God, like 20 to 30 birds gobbling in every which way, every direction. It was just like, what is this? This is, this is silly. It's, it's crazy. And it's still turkey hunting. It's still fun. It's still hard. It's still challenging, but their populations are, I mean, it's just a completely different thing. And, and they gobble all day, like all day. We, we shot birds at three o'clock, you know, we were taking naps and basically just trying to figure out where they're going to roost the next day and you know they just start gobbling and we're like oh we got one on the you know up on that ridge gobbling and start talking to it and then all of a sudden you know 30 minutes later there's a bird on the ground it's just it blows my mind especially you know coming from south florida where the birds i mean they're they're really quiet you know most of the time um if they especially when they've been pressured you know they'll they'll hit the ground and shut up you know they'll gobble their heads off when they're on the tree um, but they'll get, you know, pretty quiet once they hit the ground, unless, you know, they, they feel pretty comfortable in the area. At least down there, you can get back deep enough to find some up here. They're so, they're so pressured mm-hmm. in North Florida, where I'm at, uh, we got 2000 acres that we lease and been turkey on it three years now. And I've not heard a gobble after the first week of turkey season since we've had the property and we have mm-hmm. them on camera year round during deer season and everything else. They're just non-vocal birds. And I, t- I always say this, if you take somebody that hunts in Iowa or Missouri or Illinois or Wisconsin and, and bring them down here and say, you got to hunt turkeys in Florida, 9% of them would quit. They wouldn't even hunt. <laughs> yeah, I, I believe it. But, you know, it's 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 just different. You know, the, the terrain's different. Uh, you know, the birds are different. Um, there's, a, there's a big, big learning curve. And if, if you don't have those weeks to scout and spend time and kind of like, figure out the rhythm of this place. Uh, you know, it, it's, you, you have an uphill battle. I mean, I, I know folks that, you know, have been coming three, four years and, and have, you know, just either not harvest one yet, or just got their first one. Like it's, you know, you got to really commit to, to spending time here to, to really start getting in the groove of it. I mean, you're, I mean, I'm sure some folks are going to show up, you know, they're going to get a quota hunt and, and, you know, drop in and, and find a great spot and, but um, for most folks, I think, you know, you, you're really at a disadvantage without having that time to kind of learn the land. You know what? My hat's off to the THB guys that came down there uh, two years ago. And I was surprised. They, they actually got a bird. Now, they also were going to stay until they got one. I think it was like yeah. day 14 when they finally got one. But you know what? My hat's day still 10. off to them. Day yeah. 10. My hat's yeah. still off to them, though. They, they adapted and. Let me tell you something right now. Those are some tough guys. They they yeah. really are gritty. And like I said, I know when we saw them, I know how far away they were from where they were camping. And I was like, my hat's off to them because we saw them deep in there one day. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's a, it's a good example. And, it, and it's something that I, you know, I think they illustrated in the videos, but it, it's still, it's, it's very hard, it, very hard to translate that of being somewhere for 10 days and hunting and trying to figure that out and keeping up, you know, good spirits and keeping at it. Like, I think most folks, you know, after two, three days that they, they turn around and, and just tell you, you know, this place sucks and go home, you know, 
Um, so yeah, definitely hats off to them. And, you know, when I did see them, uh, you know, hunting some of the areas I've hunted before, um, you know, I, I did get a little nervous that they would have quick success. So I am, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, a little, a little glad they had to work for it. <laughs> so, well, when I said they were tough, that's what I meant. Mentally yeah. tough. Like it, they're in one of the most miserable places in the world to hunt turkeys. Matter of fact, I will say it. It's the most miserable place in the world to hunt turkeys yeah. if you don't know what you're doing. And they did it with good spirits and with the same tenacity on day 10 as they did on day one. Uh -huh. I'll give, I'll give them credit for that. Yeah. They're definitely professionals. All right. Let's switch to deer. So on your deer hunting down there, it's probably a lot different than up here. Up here, we're looking for scrapes, rub lines, transition zones between say Creek bottom and, and short pines where they planted the pines, but you don't have that down there for the most part on, on, on the open public land. Mm hmm what what are you looking for i mean obviously rubs i'm sure they rub down there but i wouldn't think they would scrape too much because all the water yeah they scrape it's just hard to find because it's in the water so or i should say uh you probably i don't know what percentage but you know maybe half the time it's in the water so it's they're just harder to find so it's not it's not something you're targeting I and mean, rubs is definitely uh you know what you're looking for game trails especially i mean my my approach has always been to walk game trails, you know, find areas, uh, you know, whether it be, you know, satellite imagery or, or just having, you know, seen it an area from, you know, the truck or whatnot, but just to get into an area and just walk it, just, just put boots on the ground and cover as much ground as you possibly can. And, and just find those game trails. Cause what I, what I always am looking for is I'm, walking down those game trails is is where game trails hit other game trails mm -hmm. and find intersections and all of a sudden like as you're walking the game trails you're kind of picking up on like the idea of like why is this deer going this way or that way and and like i said as, as you follow those game trails you'll hit areas that cross other game trails and you'll you know you'll all of a sudden you'll hit an intersection and then on that intersection you'll find some rubs and and then all of a sudden you'll you'll kind of have a, a a high moment and then you'll set a trail camera and then come back two weeks later and, and have a buck or, or not have a buck on camera. Right. Do, do you ever find beds or or have you ever oh, yeah. known of a deer to bed in water? Because I have uh, not in water. Yeah. Uh, I mean, very close to water, very, very, very near water. Uh, basically, especially in the in the prairies, uh, you know, everything will be surrounded by water and they'll just pick the tiniest little island that, you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, maybe a clump of two, three palmettos uh, could be as, as small as that. Um, just one little dry spot um, that they can rest up on. And, and sure enough, there'll be beds in it or, you know, a big uh, pine island, uh, you know, surrounded by water. But, you know, I, I, pretty pretty easy to find beds i mean anywhere you're going to find dry spots uh that is good deer habitat and kind of you know checks all the boxes you're gonna you're gonna find beds and and that, that's essentially what i'm looking at too is just where are they bedding and where are they feeding and, and just kind of trying to set up between those areas speaking of habitat going back to the thp guys did you did you catch the fact that they didn't know what a live oak was uh they were like there's this funny looking oak tree and and, oh, and that's 
<laughs> I may remember. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, have you found many sheds down there, or they no, just float no. away? Yeah, just a few. Well, it's it's such a moist environment that I think that you know that that bone material that it does doesn't really last. Whether you know whether it be the elements or whether it be you know mice or rodents will eat them. But I you know found very few. You know maybe three in the last ten years. Wow. Um, if you had to pick a week of the rut, that'd be the best week of hunting, which would it be? If you just had to take an arbitrary guess. Uh, well, it's tricky because our rut, I mean, truly starts before season opens. So you're talking like, you know, mid July, mid like third, second or third week of July. Um, and we, you know, we can't even get in the woods till, uh, starting in August. So. It's tough. I mean, it, and it, those ruts, you know, we've got one like main hard rut and then they'll continue to rut, you know, on each moon cycle. But um, I think, you know, you, you just get out when you can get out. And if the rut happens, it's, it's awesome. And, you know, you get to see a lot of action and have a better chance at, at hunting, but ultimately, uh, you know, I'm out there on Saturday and Sunday, if, you know, on any Saturday and Sunday that I'm not at work. You can't kill them from the couch. You got to be there. No, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, it ruts a funny thing in Florida. It's, you know, it's not like the rest of the country where you're dealing with winter. I mean, here, you know, we, it, it the deer are influenced by the wet and dry season. I mean, ultimately, you know, the best chances for a fawn to drop or, when the water's not so high, uh, obviously, cause they're, you know, a shorter animal. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you could see a spotted fawn at, at any given time of the year or, or a buck with, you know, in any phase of antler development at any time of the year. And it was a funny picture, uh, that was up on, uh, Facebook that was making the rounds on social media last year of, uh, it was in South Florida of three bucks, uh, together on a levee and, and one of them had shed its antlers. One of them was velvet and one of them was a hard horn. So, oh, really? Yeah. They were just all bachelored up and they were all three of them in, in, you know, three different states of, of antler growth. And, and that really summed up, uh, South Florida. I mean, the rules are, you know, they're, 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 they're there like genetically and like, they're kind of like somewhere buried in the, <clears throat> in the deer's DNA, but you know, it, it really doesn't uh, affect them uh, the way it does the rest of the country, like I said, because we don't have that winter. And, you know, additionally, it is it is here, particularly in South Florida, it's a unique subspecies of the white-tailed deer. Um, so, you know, genetically, it's kind of strayed from, from other uh, white-tailed deer. You know, here in South Florida, we're hunting particularly the Seminole white-tailed deer. Um, so, you know, as probably most folks know and there's a smaller deer, uh, you know, smaller body, smaller antler growth. Uh, and even as you go move down the state, further down the state, they, they even get smaller and smaller, hmm. uh, just based on it, our, our soils, you know, it's very poor nutrient, like just in general, South Florida, like it's natural South Florida, uh, has very poor soils and the further South you go, um, the poorer the soils get. So, you know, you, you could find, uh, you know, a property that's got feeders on it and have these monster bucks. And then, you know, you move over to the, the WMA next door. Um, and then you've got these little scrubby, you know, palmetto bucks, 
Um, but that really has a lot to do with, with the nutrients in the soil. Yeah. If you up in Illinois, if you, if it rains a little bit, you're getting stuck in your truck somewhere. It's like, if you pick the dirt up and rub it between your fingers, it's like oily rich, you know, you can feel the difference in that. And if you do it here in the mud here, the mud feels gritty or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and that soil has a lot to do with why, you know, Illinois has such big crops, big bucks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this was, this, this was the ocean floor, you know, not too long ago. So, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, I, I had a, I have a friend who, who, um, he took a guy, I can't remember where he's from, maybe Missouri or Kentucky. I can't remember, but he took a guy out, um, uh, turkey hunting here in South Florida and, and he recorded the whole hunt and, and the, and the, the, the guy was fortunate enough to, to shoot a Jake and he's, uh, he, he's calling his wife, uh, up on the phone and, and showing her, he's doing like a video chat with her and, and the, the soil that he's standing on is, is sand. It's, it, you know, it's like white sand. It looks like the beach. And he's like, honey, look at me. It's, it's like, I'm at the beach. Like, look at this thing here. Like, you know, like he was just kind of like blown away by it. And then like, you know, really it's, you know, it's like I said, this was the ocean floor not too long ago. So a lot of <laughs> legacy still remains, uh, you know, in, in just in the, the, the nutrients in the soil the giant snails down there are cool i always bring shells back for my daughter the mm -hmm. empty shells we don't have those here oh yeah um did you see the guy that two years ago it was opening day or opening weekend he he killed a bird and he took it to the beach in miami <laughs> oh no he did a photo shoot with him laying oh, next to no. his turkey on the beach <laughs> oh no no i didn't see that yeah <laughs> you know respect aside it was pretty comical yeah yeah, I have a, I don't know, I have, I have a, my, I have very mixed feelings on uh, the, the out-of-state pressure and and all all that the elusive Osceola draws to South Florida. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's it's tough to be a South Florida hunter and then kind of experience that. It, it, it's a weird dynamic because you're there the week before and nobody's there and you're listening to the birds gobble and then opening weekend comes and, and all of a sudden there's four out-of-state license plates, uh, you know, parked at one of your spots and it's tough, you know, it, it's tough to kind of emotionally uh, digest that. Man, I, I can't even imagine. Like, I can, I can see what you're saying and you, you laying it out right there, I picture it. I'm like, it's got to be annoying. Uh, when we were down there, I promise you, Without a doubt, I saw more out-of-state tags than I did oh, yeah. tags. Every, every oh, yeah. parking lot we pulled into, and I was like, Wisconsin? Louisiana? Yeah. What in the world? Texas? Georgia? Yeah. You know. Well, we uh, open up before any – I mean, we're the first open in the country. So. You are the elusive – you're the elusive uh, cookie out there. Uh, you know, it's the oh, Osceola, yeah. and there's nowhere else in the world you can hunt other than Hawaii in that weekend. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you know, for, we're for first week of March and, you know, we've, it's a unique subspecies that you can't find anywhere else. And it's, you know, it's that, la it's that last box that most turkey nuts need to check off too. So yeah. you could pay uh, two to $3,000 to hunt private, uh, you know, or you could, you know, have at it and test your might. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to make some people mad, but I've heard I've learned a lot about the whole uh come here for 100% chance at a Osceola gobbler. <laughs> I, I I know where they come from, but I'm not going to piss everybody off today. I'm going to move on. Um so when you're deer hunting, 
you're you're looking for game trails and the game trails intersect and then you're going to see a rub line which everybody loves seeing a rub line it tells you a lot which way the boat's mm-hmm. coming from where he's going you know or you're you're gonna you're gonna try to hunt near there right if you find good sign mm-hmm. yeah so but, are you hanging a stand or are you tree saddling uh w- well right now i've i've crossed over to the dark side so oh, no I'm now a saddler so you're a saddler uh, this is my second year saddling so I have officially made the jump uh, after, you know, much resistance at first. Um, but, at, you know, ultimately it came down to, you know, finding something that was actually comfortable and then uh, realizing, uh, you know, just how practical that was. And also the climbing technique. I, I've kind of fell into or just got super interested in SRT climbing, which is single rope. And, uh, you know, super, super kind of simple way to get up and down a tree. And, uh, you know, once, once that kind of like dawned on me that all I needed to do was, was bring in a rope. Um, I kind of, I kind of went for it and I I just don't think I can carry a a tree stand, uh, again. I just, honestly, I, I don't think I can. The only downside to single rope is, uh, I cannot, uh, climb a palm tree which i do still have a tree stand so i do have a climber um and if i cannot find uh, a pine tree with a limb uh, or a cypress tree big enough uh to get up that i do have that as backup so hold on now that is completely foreign to us guys up here is it what i think it is where you throw a rope over a limb and, and tie it off uh well sort of yeah so uh to begin with, you you take a line that has a weight at the end, that, you know, they call it a throw ball, um, and you're going to pitch it up into the tree and try and catch a limb. Now, you're unless it's a big fat limb, you're not necessarily trying to catch that limb, but just trying to find a place for your rope to, to get up uh, in, a, in a spot where you can choke the tree. So once your throw ball comes down, you can then attach your line to it um, run your line up the tree, uh, where you have, you know, up and over. So you're holding two, uh, ends of the line at the bottom, and then you're going to run a knot in, uh, in one end of your line, you're going to loop your line through that knot, and then you're going to pull it, hoist that knot up the tree and basically choke where, where that line went over that limb. So you're not necessarily trying to tie off to a, to a limb, um unless it's fat enough to to carry your weight but but more so to to choke the tree and then once you've got that climbing rope up uh and choked um then you can ascend it uh with some kind of uh ascending device and that that the options there there's there's a lot on the market and, and you could probably do four podcasts and and still not cover it all wow so i just must be behind the t- so you're doing this at five o'clock in the morning with in a headlamp no so um, basically what I'm doing is running presets, which are lines that are in the tree. And uh, I'll basically scout, um, you know, decide where, where I want to set up, you know, in the weeks before season. Um, and just like you would, you know, if you were trying to drag in a ladder stand, you know, setting up your stands before season. Um, instead, I'm, I'm running lines up uh, in trees that I, I want to, uh, sit in and, and I'll leave basically paracord uh, tied to the tree and I'll, I'll have multiple trees kind of like set up for different winds and then set up, you know, in different areas in case, you know, I show up some, some spot and there's a truck park there. 
um, and just, you know, leaving different setups so that when I do approach the tree, that line is up the tree. And then all I have to do is tie that paracord onto my climbing rope and then raise my climbing rope up and over and then start ascending. So it's so cool. Yeah. I mean, it probably, you know, it's probably like five minutes, uh, really to ascend. And, you know, once you get all your gear out and kind of, you know, get situated, I mean, you're, you're probably ready to hunt in 10 minutes, you know, once you've got that, that line already in the tree. So how, how fast was the learning curve from a stand to a saddle? And I, I've always, you know, I've always thought they'd make your legs go numb or you, you yeah. couldn't, you no, couldn't get a shot on a deer if you had to no, turn that, around. That was or, part of it. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, until I found something, um, you know, that was comfortable, uh, you know, I, I was, I was hesitant myself. Right. Um, it's, I will say, I mean, I'm not going to tell you that it's the best thing in the world and it's, you know, it's, it's perfect. It, it's not, I mean, I honestly would rather sit in the ladder stand, um, in any of the spots that I hunt, uh, rather than, than with a saddle. But I, what I will say is that it's probably equal to a climber, um, in comfort, you know, in comfort. Um, but it's a fraction of the weight, right? So, you know, the, the practicality of it is, you know, you're dealing with, with fabric, uh, that doesn't make noise. You know, there's no metal that clinks and, um, even some of the carabiners that, uh, you do utilize, like you can wrap, uh, tape around and, and dampen any sound. Uh, so it's just, especially I feel like as I'm, as I'm getting older and I'm, I'm, I'm not old by any means I'm, I'm 42. Um, but I don't feel like 35 anymore. Um, <laughs> so having that, you know, climber on my back feels different. Um, especially if I'm going a mile and a half in, um, you know, three days in a row, um, you know, I come out of that, uh, weekend and with some pretty sore shoulders. So, um, it's just, yeah, it's, it's the comfort is in getting in and out of the woods. Right. And then the sit is, is really, you know, you, you find different positions and, you know, that's where the, the right tree saddle comes in and, you know, people's bodies are different. So I would suggest, and, you know, a lot of guys now are doing these tree saddle workshops where they have different tree saddles you could sit in, but I would, I would highly, highly suggest um, that you sit in something before you commit, because most of these folks are charging like $300 for these things. Uh, and you, you don't want to, you know, make that kind of commitment. And then, you know, your butt's falling asleep on your first hunt. I mean, it really comes down to, you know, your, your shape, your body shape, and all these things are different, right? So I would, I would highly recommend that, you know, you attend one of these saddle workshops, um, and uh and just see how your body feels in in that particular design my co-host ricky who's not with us tonight he is a big tree saddle guy now now he's never spoke to me about the srt thing but like i said i'm a lease i'm a you know hunting club hunter i'm just just getting into the public land thing he would have probably known what that was but mm -hmm. i always make fun of me like what are you gonna do crossfit now man <laughs> uh, no i definitely look it definitely takes um a little more abs like it it feels like uh your abs are are a little more involved um but uh i you know I, it's no it's it's not it's not really hard and, and some of the techniques are harder than others like uh for instance like single stick climbing um which is kind of really popular too 
um, to kind of shed uh, or like break your system down to only getting up and down a tree with with one climbing stick. Um, that's a little more requires a little more ab muscle or you know a little more better physical shape. So right. it, I don't know. It, it's it's kind of the rabbit hole. I think you just need to go down yourself and like be careful of, of buying into you know some of the you know uh, you know there's a lot going on right now in like the saddle market and you know a lot of you know people are just trying to sell you stuff so they're going to tell you how great it is but like i said I, I think you need to spend hours watching youtube videos you know sit in a bunch of different saddles and just you know find what you're what you're comfortable with because you could buy into some of the hype and you know buy a saddle that doesn't fit you right and a climbing technique that that your body's just not fit for and then you know feel miserable uh but again like i said i would i would i would rather sit in a ladder stand you know on on any hunt i i can't sit in a in a saddle all day absolutely not I, but i can't you know sit in a climber all day i mean it's just I've, I've not found a climber uh that you know doesn't weigh 50 pounds that that you know isn't uh that comfortable you know I, I sit down i stand up i sit down i stand up and th the same is true for a saddle you know i lean back i stand up i lean back i stand up and you just kind of pivot off of uh you know uh you know what's what's falling asleep your legs or your butt you know i got you I'm, i can see all that as you're saying it we, <laughs> yeah. we, did, we did a hunt up in illinois or the first year we ever went like 12 10 12 years ago at, at an outfitter and he's like listen if you're here I want you in the stand every, every minute the sun's up. He said, mm -hmm. oh, it's, so we had to sit in lock-ons for 12, 13 hours at a time. <laughs> oh my God. I can't even explain, man. I can't yeah. even explain. No, I have a couple ladder stands and I mean, that's like, it's like sitting in a beach chair, you know, sitting in a, you know, uh, like an outdoor chair to any of the ones I have at home. I, I could sit in all day. I could sleep, I could snooze and, you know, and, and it's just, you know, it's a, it's a big difference. Oh, I slap, uh, my uncle uses gunslingers and I got him one of those one time and I was like, man, I lean back cause it lays out way away from the tree. <laughs> and that was before safety harnesses. You just get up there and hunt, you know, and uh -huh. I laid back. I was like, man, this thing is kind of boom. I woke up. It was two hours after dark. I I'd slept. <laughs> I mean, I fell asleep and slept. So I can't be in those either. Cause I won't see any deer. Yeah. Yeah. You just, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to get four or five of those out in, in different spots based on different winds a mile and a half uh, back into a swamp, you know? Right. Uh, I understand. And that climber is very cumbersome. I understand that. I just, I just went to more of a mobile setup. I ordered it today, actually, some climbing sticks and a really light stand uh, cool. lock on. But uh, do you, do you walk in everywhere? Do you, do you use an ATV permit or anything like that? No, I mean, pretty much, pretty much a walk-in hunter. I mean, I would, I would probably, you know, love a swamp buggy. Um, you know, I know, uh, you know, if I have, if, if I could afford one, you know, if I had the time to work on one, I'd, I'd probably, I'd have one. Um, but, you know, I, even if I had one, it wouldn't, it wouldn't mean that, you know, I roll up to my spot and, and set up. I feel like even if I had a swamp buggy, I'd, it would just be an excuse to drive three miles in and then walk the mile that, that, you know, you can't get to, or that's off the trail. Um, cause ultimately I am, you know, very interested in finding spots away from people and getting, you know, away from the crowd. I'm, uh, you know, just in terms of 
being successful is really important, but just for my own mental health, like having solitude and, and having that experience, uh, is one of the reasons I go out to the woods. It's just, you know, I'm mostly hunt alone. Uh, so I'm just kind of, uh, enjoy that, that, that solitude. To me, the only draw, cause I enjoy walking and I enjoy seeing things that you can't see. If you're riding by on a swamp buggy, you're not going to see, but to me, the only draw is would be turkey season when you could go six miles in before daylight and then turn it off and just listen for gobbles and mm -hmm. then and then make an attack from there. Or because I promise you, about three hours in, every time I've been, I'm like, God, I'd love to have a swamp buggy run. It's a double edged sword because I've also been back there where you know I walk two three miles and I am close to a trail, but I walk two three miles in anyway because you know I don't have a swamp buggy and and somebody comes in. Um, as a bird's goblin and and once they turn off that swamp buggy you never hear that bird again you know I've, I've had that experience i've had a bird gobble and and someone drive in and and you don't hear it again so wow um, i've never very, thought i've never thought of it that way yeah they're very sensitive to pressure so even if you're going gonna go in you know i would say either get in very early or you know go go in the two miles but but that last half mile, you know, walk it. All right. We'll switch gears. I'll say, I'll give you a minute to talk about this. Cause I feel that you're probably pretty passionate about it. Last year we went far South and on open public. And I bet you, I found not exaggerating eight balloons in one day. Mm. And I thought it was the weirdest thing ever. Like I'm not seeing anything else. And then all of a sudden you see a blue shiny thing hundred yards away and you walk up it's another balloon why in yeah. the world are there so many balloons in the everglades well uh it beats me uh i you know we one thing about south florida is you know we're we have this great amount of public land uh great amount of wilderness um but it's also very close uh to a lot of urban areas a lot of cities so um the balloons are going to get, you know, let go from Miami or Fort Lauderdale uh, or Naples. And they're either going to go into the ocean or they're going to end up in, you know, in the marsh or swamp. So unfortunately, it's something that, you know, I think as a culture, uh, we haven't really caught on to yet is the fact that, you know, we're at these kids birthday parties, letting go of balloons and going, wee, and like, you know, like having that experience, we don't really see uh, or can imagine uh, where these things are, are winding up at, you know, good folks who probably, you know, wouldn't throw a soda can out their window driving down the highway, but may think it's fun to, to let their kids let go of balloons. Um, you know, just can't sort of like picture where these things are going to end up. And, you know, it's, it's a shame, uh, you know, particularly in the ocean where, you know, animals are mistaking these things for food and, you know, choking on them or getting wrapped up in them. Uh, you know, it's, uh, there's a hashtag and I think even an Instagram page out there that, uh, the hashtag goes, uh, you know, balloons blow, don't let them go. So I'm, I'm always picking them up and, and I'm posting, uh, you know, posted pictures of those on my, on my Instagram too, and, you know, just trying to encourage people to, to pick them up. Uh, you know, if they pass them by, just, you know, just stuff it in your Turkey vest, you know, uh, you know, it's just, you know, do 
the woods have, has given you that gift, uh, to allow you to be there that day. So, you know, that's, that's sort of how I give back is just, you know, take care of it in my own, you know, it's not, you know, you're not making a big difference or anything like that, but it's just a mindset, you know, I think that that's important. That's right. Everybody needs the mindset. Uh, it's just like, I tell my kids when you're walking through the yard, if you see a piece of trash or something, pick it up, Mm -hmm. just pick it up. Gosh, it's, it's a good habit. It's a holy place, you know, for me, it, it, it truly is, you know, when I'm in the woods, I mean, that's, that, that, that's my, a sacred space for me. So, um, you know, I try to, you know, think about that and be conscious of that. And even myself, you know, if I have a thermocell pad, I'm changing or something like that, you know, I just be mindful of not dropping a wrapper on the floor or something like that. And just, you know, if you pack it in, pack it out. Yeah. People balloons don't go to heaven. They go to Chogan. they go to sea turtles. Uh-huh. So I did notice on your Instagram a sheep shearers camp. Uh, yes, sir. Yep. That's what, in one- what in the world and how far off the beaten road was that? Uh, I want to say it's about two miles in, uh, in a, yeah, you know, I've, I like to wander and, you know, you find cool spots and, you know, you, you, a lot of these management areas, um, you know, still have some pretty cool finds, um, you know, some nice relics to old Florida. And, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to find those, those little places, you know, especially, you know, wandering two, three miles back in and you think about the stories and the lives that, you know, uh, took place at these places or, you know, it's, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's romantic if if you will. Sure. <laughs> sure. I can get on with that. Uh, I have a buddy in West Florida where the Swanee dumps into the Gulf and he has an airboat and his hunting club is, I mean, it's huge. It's like 30,000 acres, but it actually goes all the way to the ocean. So we go out on his airboat out of the, you know, the Island there come around and come in the marsh. And he showed me last time, we just pulled up on this random island out in the marsh and there's a hut built there. And he mm-hmm. said, yeah, this is an old hunting cabin from who knows, 40s, 50s. Yeah. I mean, who really knows? It's built out of the cypress trees that are there. Mm-hmm. It's just so cool to think about how many men, women, whoever sat there, oh, had, yeah. them, had them a glass of whiskey, you know, with a campfire mm-hmm. and cooked some food there. And just, it's literally, you can only get to it from a boat. That's yeah. what's cool. No, I love, yeah, I love finding old tree stands. I mean, you just think about, you know, uh, you know, what, what, what are some of the old hunting stories that, that came out of this spot? You know, you, you find a stand that's probably been in there longer than you've been alive. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of nice to think of these places as timeless and, you know, that perhaps maybe if you're lucky, uh, you know, your children will, will get to see these places too. Yeah. We, we, we're a lot alike in that aspect, man. Today I was on that public, I was telling you about, and this, this, Creek bottom, I mean, it's, it's got trees that are well over a hundred years old and mm-hmm. like big white oaks and sawtooth oaks and stuff like that. And I'm walking and I'm like, I look up and there's three pieces of, of wood up in this tree and they're all, it's all grown around it and everything. And I'm like, dang, you know what they always say? If you find an old wooden deer stand that's there for a reason, you need to hunt it. Mm-hmm. And of course the trees around it are a hundred years old and they're still dropping acorns. Mm-hmm. And I look, I walked another 20 steps giant scrape right in the middle of the trail mm. i was like yeah i'm gonna put a camera right here oh yeah panthers yep we got how many how many do you uh encounter a year 
Uh, probably only one or two a year, maybe. Yeah. And that's part of the reason we call y'all crazies is because <laughs> y'all are out there at five o'clock in the morning oh, yeah. with a headlamp and a, yeah. a, a knife. <laughs> but uh, I, you know, to be quite honest, what the, the only thing that's really scared me is finding an alligator in a pine Island in the palmettos. Like that's been the only thing that, had, that has been like, that has shook me. That has been like, Holy mackerel. Did I not expect that? Because at this point, you know, you expect the panthers, you expect the bears, you expect the snakes, you expect the gators where you think they're going to be. But, you know, it's quite shocking to come up on them in a, in a middle, uh, for instance, of a, of a completely dry prairie uh, that you're crossing, because that that's when you let your guard down, uh, you know, and those you, you might not be looking for those eyes shining back at you. But, you know, when you're crossing through that deep water, you're looking for it so you're prepared and and fortunate enough you know our, the water that you know when people think of swamps they think of these muddy boggy places but you know here the water's moving all the time uh you know it it doesn't look like it but but it's flowing it's you know it's always moving downhill from from Okeechobee down to Florida Bay so that water's crystal clear so you know you got a headlamp on you know you could see the bottom no problem you're going to be able to see a gator um, you know, unless the water's really moving to where it's, you know, creating a lot of motion. So you expect that stuff, but man, a, a gator in the middle of a dry prairie or, or in saw palmettos, like dry saw palmettos, you know, that's that, those are the few times where I was like, Whoa, you know, I, you know, I've stepped on moccasins. I've, I've come real close to, to rattlesnakes, but I was always looking for them. Right. It, right. But those gators in those weird spots, that's, those are the ones that catch you off guard he was probably ornery too yeah it just you know they they don't react well to it and you know they they don't want to be messed with as much as you don't so they kind of you know they'll whip and explode and just you know scare the poop out of you listeners i don't know where y'all live you're listening to this show but in north florida we have alligators you know they're not very prevalent we got plenty of them you can hunt them every year my first time in the everglades I could not believe how many alligators <laughs> are there. And I'm talking about big ones, <laughs> freaking dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. And I have never been scared of an alligator in my life until I went down there for the first time. I'm, I legitimately have never cared about an alligator. Swim in the river, swim in the lakes. I don't care. Down there, I was like, there's definitely some down here big enough to take a leg off for sure. And yeah. it's finding them in the middle of the night like that that makes you scared. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's a it's a formidable place. You know, there's a reason uh, the Seminoles were able to, you know, outrun or or outhide uh, the U.S. Army during the Seminole Wars, you know, for a long Uh, time, for a long time. Right. Uh, You know, up, you know, up until 175 years ago, we didn't even know what the interior of this place looked like, you know, the rest of the West had been mapped essentially, but, you know, between the, the beaches of Florida uh, and South Florida, you know, we had no idea, you know, what was down there. It was just virtually unmapped and we didn't figure it out um, till uh, the Seminole Wars until we were chasing Seminoles across that. And, and even at that point, you know, they, they, they really uh, gave a run uh, for their money for, you know, to the U S army, um, you know, 
uh, a lot of people don't realize how costly that war was. I mean, it truly was uh, this country's first Vietnam, you know, and it's, it's wild to me um, to, to imagine that, that we've forgotten it essentially, um, you know, in our history. I mean, we, we as Floridians are aware of it because, you know, we got that lesson in, in high school, but, you know, uh, you know, if you, you talk to folks around the country, they, they really don't realize, uh, you know, what a big uh, impact that war had on this country. I mean, it was the, the biggest, the greatest Indian war of all of them. And, you know, it, it ultimately came down to this place and this terrain and, and just how formidable it was, you know, the heat and the humidity and the bugs. I mean, you know, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on safari here, you know, going to my, jumping in my truck with my AC and rolling up to my hunting spot. But, you know, for those folks who were stuck down here before, you know, air conditioning was invented where, you know, they couldn't get a cold shower and, and they were here, you know, for months, uh, during the summer, uh, without a break, um, you know, my hat's off to him. And that's, you know, one of the things I think about when I find those old spots and then find those old ladder stands and, you know, you think about the folks who, who, who roughed it out here, um, you know, before AC, like I said, you know, before, yeah, before thermosel for GPS, you know, I mean, it's, it's truly wild, you know, so, you know, at, at in, you know, in, in one regard, you know, we, we all like to, you know, pat ourselves on the back and call ourselves bladesmen and, and say how, you know, beat our chest and talk about how tough we are. But, but in the other regard, you know, most of us probably couldn't hack it, you know, a uh, hundred years ago, uh, standing next to those folks who were down here first, you know, this, this was truly a remote place and uh, a really rough country. I mean, it, the Everglades is, it's just the environment is, it's, it doesn't lend itself to, to people, you know, as I think of it, you know, when you're there, even when you're there for a few days, it's like, it's always telling you to go home. You know? <laughs> it's always you, reminding that you don't belong like, there. You're this, you know, go, go back home, you know, go back, go back to your couch, go watch Netflix. Like it's, it's always something that I have to like, you know, say no, no, no. Like, you know, I have to be stubborn about and kind of like just trudge myself through. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's like to have gotten to the other is bored, right? It's, it's like, hold on, you, yep. start over to have gotten to, to have gotten through the, uh, you know, to the other side is the reward. It's, right. I don't know, you know, whether it's the endorphins that are kicking off in your head or, you know, there's something that you start to crave about the torture and, you know, just, just sweating, you know, like I, I somehow crave sweating to where I'm completely soaked. Like I, I like it, you know, as long as I can get back to my truck and, you know, and, and pop an electrolyte packet into my, into a cold water that's in my cooler and then go back to my camper and then jump in a cold shower. Like I, you know, I absolutely crave it. You know, I absolutely crave sweating. I crave that, you know, August archery season. And, and, you know, some folks think that's crazy, but I don't know. You just, you just adapt. Can you imagine that being your entire existence and having no reprieve? <laughs> My favorite book yeah. in the, I love reading. My favorite book in the world is A Land Remembered by Patrick D. Smith. Yeah. Have you ever read that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my. 
gosh. If yeah. I, everybody listening, I'm telling you, read that book. It's about Florida history. It, it, it goes over all of this that Richard's talking about. And I actually heard a story about some soldiers during that Seminole Indian War that got lost in the Everglades or something. And they like went crazy and killed themselves because it was so miserable out there. Yeah, there, yeah, there's, there's multiple accounts of uh, soldiers committing suicide during the Seminole War. And one of the things that in the beginning of the Seminole War, they would only do the, their war, the U.S. Army would only fight, essentially, uh, during the cooler months. This was in the beginning years of the war. Um, they would only fight uh, maybe from October uh, you know, to May. They would, they would, it, would, it was like a seasonal thing because they just thought it was crazy to continue this thing during the summer. Well, at some point, um, you know, one of the generals decided that the only way we're going to win this thing or gain any ground is if we do this all year long. And, uh, you know, that really proved to be, you know, d- more difficult to say than to do. And, and, and the result really was that more soldiers died during the Seminole War of, of you know, wounds and diseases and suicide than they did actually, you know, being killed by a Seminole. Um, you know, it really took a toll, especially um, on the soldiers who were not from Florida. You know, a lot of them weren't even from the United States. A lot of these folks came over as immigrants from Europe. Um, they had no money. Uh, and what would they do to kind of survive would be to sign up for the army. Um, and then they were shipped down to Florida where their bodies were just completely, you know, uh, not adapted to the environment, um, you know, just kind of like repulsed by the weather. And, you know, there's a famous quote uh, by an army surgeon that said, you know, like, you know, never did anybody fight for a more miserable place. We should just let them have it. Like, oh. This, you know, if there's a place to, to, to put the Indians, it's, it's in the Everglades. Right? Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, we were, we were that, that legacy or that sort of sentiment carried on, you know, all the way into, you know, the last century where at some point during the fifties and sixties, we just kind of decided that this place was worth something. And, and then, uh, you know, the sentiment or the feelings or just in general kind of changed toward it. And then all of a sudden we were, we were starting to think about uh, restoration and, and just kind of, you know, saving these places and keeping them wild. And, um, you know, Florida is in terms of, uh, you know, being forward thinking is, has been very proactive about, um, you know, protecting these areas and saving these areas. And, you know, today, like, you know, I, I complain about the balloons and, and, you know, just how, uh, you know, the, the, the difficulty of, of having these wild places next to these dense urban areas is, um, it's all also ultimately like the test for us as people, because this is something that sooner or later, all wild places, uh, are going to be faced with eventually. Right. Like this, this is the test that that we as as humans uh, are 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 playing out here in Florida. Like right. ultimately, all these grand wild places that we think of as remote and huge wildernesses, they're all going to have huge cities, you know, tightly knit, woven around them. I mean, look, I mean, just look at Montana and and a lot of the growth out there, Idaho, and and how 
how the growth that's happening in Boise. I mean, this, this is all coming, you know, I mean, it might not be in our lifetime, it might be in our children's or our grandchildren's lifetime. So kind of working and, and wrestling these ideas out, it's just, you know, how, how do we deal with wildness, uh, you know, as, as, as a people. That is so depressing. Thank God for uh, Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> yeah. I mean, imagine like, you know, we could have just wiped it off the face of the earth and, uh, you know, it's scary to think that there are some countries that, that, you know, haven't, haven't gotten there yet, you know, like, like, you know, say India or China or just, you know, haven't, haven't gotten to that place yet. Um, you know, but you, you mentioned books and I, I would highly recommend if, if particularly if you're interested in, in South Florida, it's a, it's a hard book to find, uh, cause it's out of print, but it's called 40 years in the Everglades, um, by an old gladesman, Cal Stone and, and he was super influential uh, to, you know, the hunting community down here. Um, and uh, it's a really good uh, sort of like, uh, you know, just just kind of tells the tale of where South Florida was to to, you know, maybe where it was when when you and I were born and, and kind of like where it got to when we inherited it. So it's uh yeah, it's a pretty special book, but it's out of print, hard to find. But, you know, if you do search every once in a while, one will pop up for, you know, 40 bucks or something like that. Yeah, people, the moral of the story is imagine you live in Missouri. You grew up in Missouri in these beautiful springs and nice summers and, you know, big deer in the fall and just just a beautiful, happy hunting ground. And then you get shipped off in the army to the Everglades. People actually thought and decided that committing suicide is better than continuing to live in the Everglades. That's wild. From, from bug bites. Like the, you know, there was reports of people just, they couldn't, they couldn't take being bit anymore and they just shot themselves. You know, it's death by a thousand cuts sleeping in a boat with, you know, with 20 other guys. Like they just decided I can't do this anymore. Gosh. And that's, it's type two fun. That's the reason I do love it. And so from this first morning I had down there, I knew that I'd be back. It's just something about it. It's there's a mystique, like you said. It's it's almost a little bit of a weird romance with that with you have with the, the land down there. Yeah, and it and that I'll get a little sentimental here too because I also I also find it terrifying. Uh, like you know when you you talk about the panthers and the snakes and the gators and it's it's almost like haunting in a way. Um, and there's something I think that probably any gladesman or anyone who hunts these areas can relate to is that like, or anyone who's really spent a lot of time here. I mean, maybe even a, you know, a hiker or a birder that, you know, there's, there's something like, you know, it's almost like watching a horror movie. Like there's something, there's something you want, like there's something you're craving out of it that, that, you know, you might not even understand why you want it, but you, you just kind of want a little bit of suffering. I honestly like what I want out of it is I like the fact that I can prove that I can do it. I yeah. like the, I like the toughness aspect and it's only for me. It's not to brag about it, but it's like, personally, I like to know that I can go in this wild place and, and do it now totally. being successful in open public land. That's a little different, but I'm going to, I'm going to be eventually. Yeah. Look, I mean, it, you know, it, at the end of the day, it comes down to being out there and being out there over and over and over again. You know, a lot of folks, uh, you know, hit me up on, on Instagram and ask me advice and, and you know, kind of like try and pick my brain. And 
And I, I honestly, as a deer hunter, I will say like, I'm not really a great hunter. I don't really understand deer behavior as much as, you know, another guy, but I just go over and over and over and I go every weekend and I go, you know, I just don't, I don't get lazy about it and it, things just pan out. I mean, you just, you just have to kind of like be stubborn. And it, if it's something that you're tr truly interested in something that's important to you, you know, you just don't, you just don't take no for an answer, you know? That's right. Just if you put yourself out there enough times, it'll work. Yeah. I'll say this. The first year we went, we actually saw a lot more turkey sign. I'm not going to say where I'll tell you off air than the place we went this year mm -hmm. and we learned more this year about where not to go mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. but like you said it takes some people you've met you know three to five years down there to be successful we have places we're checking off okay don't go there again we remember we saw this here mm -hmm. and it's that's what it takes it's you're building yeah you're building that you're building that knowledge i mean there's definitely uh, we'll take a little bit back i mean there's definitely an inherent uh, like sensibility that you have to develop. Um, but I also feel like being out there um, teaches you that sensibility, just, you know, how to be quiet, how to walk properly in the water, or, you know, just how to use the terrain, uh, how to be quiet. And, and again, like, you know, small game is a great time of year to explore that and, and, and test yourself and, and just, you know, if, if you're out there in the woods year round, like you just, you just understand the rhythm. You, you, you become less clumsy, you, you know, you become less, you know, you bring less of your clutter in and sort of, you know, you're able to kind of like find the rhythm of, of the place you're at. And that, that's probably true. You know, that's definitely true anywhere. I mean, anywhere you hunt, I mean, it's just, you know, you have to be there and, and understand the rhythm. You learn, you learn better when you learn for yourself than if somebody tells you, mm -hmm. you, you comprehend a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. In the beginning, you know, when I first started hunting, I started picking up books on, on deer and turkey hunting and, and they were, they were nearly useless, right? Because I'm reading about, you know, ridges and river bottoms and yep. all these things. And, and we just don't have any of that here. It's, it's completely different. So, you know, there's only, there's truly, you know, there's, there's not a lot out there uh, to read in terms of that. So it really comes down to just getting out there. Well, I'll tell you what, Richard, it has been a true pleasure. You're a very well-spoken and thought out person. And it's, a, it's, a, it, I like when I have people on here that make me think and that have a, a good conversation, you know, intellectual conversation. That's awesome. I appreciate yeah, well, you coming on so much. I appreciate you for having me. And uh, I absolutely uh, also feel uh, you know, you, you invited me on and, and, uh, man, it's just fun to shoot the shit sometimes. Hey, but you have to promise me live on air, especially you are going to come back on in January, February to talk Turkey. Absolutely. Absolutely. Both... I love talking Turkey more than I like talking deer. There's more to talk about in my opinion. Uh, you know, some deer hunters don't want to hear that, but, but that's, you know, my honest truth. That is exactly how me and Ricky feel. We, we, we were hardcore deer hunters and now we we're both in like turkey nuts. So we're going to start our turkey podcast season like <laughs> before deer season's even over up here. So I, you, you're going to come back on, man. You're going to be one of our, our star guests. All right, man. Well, thank you so much, buddy. Um, 
This is uh, Richard Martinez in the Palms and Pines. And thank you so much, buddy. Thank you for having me. All right, folks, thanks for tuning in. Y'all stay with us. This train's going to keep on rolling. I promise you we're going to have some great episodes, some great guests. You're going to learn some stuff, and so are we. Thanks again.